finals. All right. I'm getting my tickets. Getting myself. You know what? It's kind of hard not to start looking ahead a little bit. That um, that game one, I think. Well, I, I don't know. Maybe we don't. Pumping the brakes might not be the the right term for it, but uh, there's a lot to be encouraged about. Uh, a lot. See, I, I yeah, I pressed the gas. I won't even, I won't even I won't ignore the brake pedal. I'm just pressed the gas. Um, yeah, I I thought um, as I probably didn't so eloquently put in our last show uh, because I think I was slurring by the time we started recording, uh, which usually doesn't happen. So I apologize. Uh, for our last show, but um, you know this isn't a great ma- on paper. This isn't a great matchup necessarily for the Sixers. Not to say they're going to lose by by any stretch, and that's not how I felt. But um, you got a slight, you know, a, a fairly experienced team uh, who likes to slow it down in the Heat, and um, played the Sixers fairly well this year. And you know that sort of grind it out, slow it down, take you out of your rhythm, hold the ball for the best shot, uh, even if they're not that good offensively. You know, can worried me a little bit with a, you know, a young team, or at least a team whose whose you know core players are fairly young. Um, you know, the Sixers have added you know some playoff experience here, and it's not like, uh, uh, it's, you know, not like they don't have guys in Redick and Bellinelli who've who've played into uh, the spring. But it worried me a little bit. Um, there's always a flip side to that coin, though, and it's which team style is going to win out. And typically, it's the better team. And clearly, clearly in game one, the younger, faster, up-tempo team uh, just imposed their will on the Heat. And, um, you know, as I said, I think on Wednesday, yeah, maybe it's not the best matchup on paper, but I wouldn't be surprised if we look back on this um, like it was, you know, the Eagles-Vikings game or, you know, pick your Villanova game throughout those runs where it was like, yeah, we were afraid of these teams, and then after we were done with them, we realized, holy shit, our squad was significantly better. And I think that's what we're going to find out uh, find out here. So most of the, the games this year between the Sixers and the Heat, I think they said the the point spread by the end was like about, about four points. And obviously the Sixers went and, and threw that, conventional wisdom that we kind of expected to the win um i think maybe more than anything the thing that i'm maybe cautioning people about because when you when you look at that final score um the the number one thing i think people are going to think is that the sixers dominated in in a way that you know i i don't think it's sustainable insofar as marco bellinelli at some point isn't going to be able to be this lights out shooter that he's that he's been recently now, if you remember when they first acquired him, he had a really good game. He scored around 20 points. Then he had a little bit of a lull. Um, I think where he's at right now, he's just in this confident mode. And, and a lot of that, and we've talked about this all year, a lot of that is just because of what Ben Simmons is able to do. The way that Ben Simmons is able to collapse the defense. Bellinelli gets a lot of open looks, but you know, maybe, maybe more than anything. For as many times as I complained about the way that J.J. Redick shoots threes, that being <laughs> on the move, I was saying to my wife uh, during game one, we're, were you telling watching, her that you were, we're wrong. Yeah, but we're watching okay. we're watching Bellinelli on that play that made the Sports Center top ten, where yeah. the ball makes it out out to the right wing. It bounces. He catches it on the run. Doesn't even really look at the hoop. Grabs it. Jumps in the air. Fades to the right. Practically going out of bounds and drains that three. And I said to her and to one of our friends that were over, I was like, when Reddick takes a shot like that. 
I'm now starting to get okay with it for the most part. When Bellinelli does it, I'm perfectly fine with it. And and the thing is, I don't know if it's the Italian swagger. I don't know if it's because I think he looks like the actor from the movie The Professional. I'm really not sure why I trust Bellinelli. Maybe it's because I feel like he looks at least a little bit like me. And, and it feels like how I would play 2K. I'm not positive, but there's something about Bellinelli that I love right now. But at the same time, I feel like at some point in this postseason run, he's going to hit a stretch of games where those shots are going to drive us nuts. And... You know, maybe maybe when you look at that 130 to 103 scoreline, it looks like full domination, and it was. But a lot of that is also because, you know, a guy like Marco Bellinelli goes out and scores 25 points for you. I don't know how sustainable it'll be. And I think at some point, you know, maybe that'll be the, the game that Ilyasova steps up more, but he had 17 points and 14 rebounds in the game. It's weird. These guys were cast away by the Atlanta Hawks, who obviously were tanking, but they've made all the difference. And I'm going to say this one thing, and I'll... And I'll throw it out there now thank you brian colangelo Mm -hmm. because with you know with all the things that i've been critical on on him for and i think rightfully so there have been some bad trades in here um the signing of Ilyasova and bellinelli are absolutely what solidified this rotation and have you know in some way made them a legitimate contender yeah bingo bingo nailed it you nailed it right on the head i think um yeah, I mean Bellinelli's playing above his, you know, scoring above his career averages in in twenty eight games, six or seven, thirteen point six points. Uh, he's never done that uh, in any stretch for any team in his career. So he's going to come back down to earth. But he's he's shooting thirty eight percent from three, which is uh, you know not unreasonable. Slightly slightly higher than normal, but again, getting better looks playing with a guy like Ben Simmons on a team like this. I think it's I think you giving Colangelo is it's good to hear. I'd be interested, you you have a better finger on the pulse than I do. What do the hardcore, how are the hardcore process folks um, reacting to Colangelo now? I know it's, it's, it's nice and rightful to go down there and scream, trust the process, and, and tweet out your hanky memes, um, because obviously he deserves a, a substantial amount of credit. They wouldn't be here if it wasn't for what he did. Um, you know, but there came a time to turn the page, and... Um, I think even though he's had a few misfires and even though watching highlights from last year and, you know, I, I see guys like Gerald Henderson on the court, um, you know, Colangelo has done a nice job of, um, paper, papering over some of the signings, papering over Jared Bayless, um, you know, with Bellinelli and Ilyasova. What is the process reaction to, to Colangelo right now? I think it's a little bit up in the air. <laughs> I, You know, like, I, I think to some extent, and, and maybe this is, I don't know if this is going to be critical, but so many of the people who have been able to kind of benefit from the process folks and the process crowd and, and you know, getting this hypercharged base together, I think are starting to see that that group is now becoming the minority. And where, you know, you used to go out to a Sixers game and there were only two, well, not 2,000, like maybe, what, 10, 12,000 people in the arena, if that, and they were typically, you know, parents who were trying to take their kids to a cheap game, and then like crazy process trusting, you know, yelling that um, Nerlens Noel was traded for a fake first round pick. Like that whole thing has changed. The mainstream folks are back. the The casual fans have now jumped back in on about caring about this team, and so I think to some extent, the process people I think are are in a lot of ways 
kind of trying to figure out how they reassimilate themselves back into this. It's not so much as trying to let the the general fan back in. You know, the general fan who goes to the game that you're cheering next to doesn't care that you watch James Nunnally. <laughs> they just don't. And so I think the process people are kind of in a weird spot because where it felt like for a long time, you know, you were going to have to try to figure out, you know, do we want these people to come back? You don't have a choice. They represent probably 75% of the fan base now that are at these games. So, you know, while you have the battle scars of having sat through all of these awful seasons, um, you don't really have a choice. And so the process people, I think, to some extent, kind of have to look at the job that Brian Colangelo has done in bringing in Ilyasova and Bellinelli and have to give him his due. I mean, you can be upset but are that Merlin's... That's what I... Well, like, you I have think, a better I pulse a lot, on that. I think a lot have because it's kind of hard not to. I mean, for as much as process people enjoyed the concept of TLC growing this year, it didn't happen. And I don't think there's anybody right now who sits back and says, man, I really wish that TLC were getting these minutes over Marco Bellinelli. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you look at the final stat lines and you see that Ilyasova and Bellinelli are contributing, was it 52 points in that game? It's kind of hard to argue. You know what I mean? And I think this is like maybe the the other thing, and this is kind of like Colangelo over two years. When he acquired Orsan Ilyasova last year, I remember I remember being one of the people who was at least somewhat upset because I said, this feels like he's going to be taking away minutes from Dario, and Dario's a guy that I want to see grow. And I, Oh, that was massive thunder. Holy crap. Um, sorry. Like Rolling. last year... <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, it's not quite like having a bird in your house, but... Uh, I don't want to talk about the bird. Um, but anyway, like Ilyasova, right? Like last year, all I was worried about was he was going to take away minutes from Dario. And I was like, last year, especially because Ben wasn't going to play, it was like, that's that's his developmental year. Mm-hmm. And then especially after Joel went out, you know, it, it just felt like these should all be minutes for Dario. Well, getting Ilyasova and then eventually trading him away to give Dario those minutes, you know, Ilyasova got to experience what this team was like, what this culture is like, what the players, the young guys are like. And that obviously had to play a big role in him coming back this year. And for as frustrating as it can be to watch literally every shot Ursan Ilyasova takes be a fadeaway, um, he he really brings some kind of fluidity to the offense. He, he brings a stabilizing force. He gives them an ability to stretch the floor from the four or the five, depending on what the lineup dictates. And so I think like over that two-year period, plus adding in Bellinelli, the process people have to give their due. And I think a lot of them are. I don't think a lot of them want to mention Brian Colangelo by name. They want to act like divine intervention came in and Bellinelli and Ilyasova just decided on their own they were going to sign here. But, you know, Colangelo had something to do with it. And, you know, we could we could all want to hang up our hinky banners, which we will. And I love. But, you know, Brian Colangelo, amidst making some some questionable moves, has done a great job in getting this team ready. All right. It it, like it felt like you were felt like you were laboring through explaining that like uh you know like you didn't kind of want to admit it and you were trying to to talk yourself into um what those you know what those folks might be feeling I don't know that's just sort of my read there his like kind of well I mean if like you talked yourself into a circle before finally settling on yeah he did a good job <laughs> I mean like there there are so many things that are kind of I think like in his tenure like if we were gonna say how's Brian Colangelo done thus far? A lot of that, I mean, a lot of that's up in the air. And a lot of that, of course, depends on how Fultz does. But Fultz has looked really good. And, you know, I think we're five, five or six years away from being able to really evaluate that trade pretty fairly. So until then, I mean, yeah, he's done a good job. I don't think Nerland's Noel would have helped this team. 
yeah, so like I, in terms of a backup center, like I, I don't, I don't see it. They got rid of Jaw. Same, John, well, and like same imagine deal. John in, in this rotation. Well, same deal. Seeing highlights from last year and seeing Gerald Henderson and Nerlens Noel run off the court, and then you're like, man, th- these guys would have no place on this current squad. You know, I think he's in. I think you know the average process folk, you know, person hates the Colangelos because of what they did to Hinky, and and Brian is a logical extension uh, of his you know, of his father. And last year wasn't a great year. He was in a weird spot, but guys like Bayless, who, you know, obviously didn't play much, but, you know, I keep going back to Henderson because I just, I personally think he is a terrible basketball player. Um, and, you know, a little bit, occasionally a little bit of a black hole. I, I don't like Henderson at all. But the point is like, the, you know, he, he, he got these guys who were, you know, league average type players to, you know, or, you know, veteran starter average type players to be able to form some semblance of a real basketball team. And, you know, I think people are upset because like you said, they may have been taking minutes away from some of the younger guys, uh, but they also aren't particularly good. And, you know, in hindsight with a team now on the verge of contending, it's like, man, we, maybe we should have been shooting a little bit higher and, and stuff like that. Then there's the whole Noel Okafor situations. Uh, and then I think there is general animosity towards the ownership group, um, you know, Scott O'Neill and, you know, certainly Jerry Colangelo for the way they they treated Hinky. And it's almost like this us against them mentality took over uh, after Hinky left. And it's really hard to come back from that. And I think you touching on, you know, there being the common fan now is is exactly the right way to put it. And there should be, you know, I, I'm walking around my neighborhood on Friday, nice day out, walking dog, walking the sun um, separately because my dog's crazy and I can't, I can't walk her with a, with a kid as well. But um, that's besides the point. So I see, you know, neighbors who I don't even know if they like basketball. I know they, you know, kind of generally like sports, but I don't know how into basketball they are. I've never held a conversation with the Sixers about them ever. Three different people uh, in, over the course of an hour on, on Friday or Saturday. Um, all of them, all they want to do is talk about Sixers, having some vague sense of knowing that, hey, Kyle does something in sports. Yeah, how about those Sixers? Hey, what time's that Sixers game tomorrow night? We got a contractor here who, you know, just knows in general what I do. And he's like, hey, what time's the Sixers game tonight? I can't wait to watch that. And like, you know, these are conversations you never would have had with anybody at any course over the last, not only five years, but I'd argue 10 plus years since the Iverson years. You know, no one really cared in 2012 other than, you know, everyone watched. mother. Right. Yeah, exactly. And people, you know, knowing their stuff, not just, oh, hey, hey, I heard they're good. Now I want to tune in. But, you know, having conversations. And interestingly, one of the, and I know this will make you pull your hair out uh, because it's a total sports talk radio topic, but everyone had the same reaction. Man, are they going to be this good when Embiid comes back? You know, I hope hope Embiid doesn't throw off their mojo. (laughs) Yeah. Now, that is, that sound is, you know, what I imagine every, you know, intelligent fan making and... Um, you know, certainly the process folks making, but, you know, I think there's a, there's actually, there's probably a reasonable discussion off of this. And I think you may have touched on it the last show. No, Embiid does not hurt them coming back. He's one of the best players. Uh, you know, he could turn out to be one of the best players in NBA history if he remains healthy, but they have been playing a, an up-tempo style. They've, they've spaced the floor more than they would with Embiid. You know, Embiid, I don't think slows them down, but I think they've able, they've been able to put oh, it does. into... Well, he he no he okay. he does like he he definitely does. All right, let me just like, that's, finish that's the thought even, though. I don't yeah. think I, I guess it's maybe slow down is the wrong word, but he well he, 
I think right now they're in overdrive. You know, they still play fast with Embiid. Um, I think, I think right now though they are in complete overdrive, and you know that will change a little bit. And they've created matchup nightmares. And you know, I, I've said this. It, when when you mentioned Bellinelli, like coming back down to earth and not hitting all those threes, this is exactly. I mean, as a as a intense fan of Villanova, this is exactly how I felt about them always, but especially this year throughout the tournament. You're like, they can't keep this up, they can't keep this up, and then every time they just in, like not only do keep it up, but seem to get better. And that's kind of what the Sixers win streak has felt like. And that's definitely what game one felt like. You're like, okay, well, they can't get this up. They can't hit threes of the clip they did in game one. You're right. That's probably true. But they have enough elite shooters at this point. uh, And they play such a hard to guard style with or without Embiid that even if, you know, Bellinelli has a horrible night or Covington has a horrible night, you know, you have Redick and Sharich. And, you know, even if Redick is, is terrible and, you know, can't see out of his left eye temporarily, which is sounds concerning, and I hope he got his retina looked at, um, you know, you have Bellinelli. So, I, you know, it's like I get that we want to say, well, this can't continue, but, um, man, there, I, I feel so many similarities because they are playing a style um, not wholly unlike, you know, Villanova, not the style's identical, but it's so unique to their respective league and so hard to guard and so many shooters who could space the floor and so many matchup nightmares that, you know, we keep wanting to say, well, when's the other shoe going to drop? Who in the East can really beat them? And I was serious when I tweeted the other night, like, who's actually going to beat this team four times, let alone over the course of seven games? And I think, honestly, I think you, you wind up in the Western Conference with the Warriors or Rockets as even potential answers to that question. Um, Embiid coming back, yeah, it might change their style a little bit, but you know you're going to get a huge boost def- defensively. And oh, never mind if your shots aren't falling. Now you have you know arguably the best big man in the league on your roster. So I, I don't think it hurts them. I would, however, be concerned about the first two game return lull that um, you may not recall this because you started watching sports in 2006. You're offensive. But um, when Eric Lindros was always hurt. Just every, you know, I'd have to look at his stats. I don't know if there was more than one season where he played what you would define as a full season. Um, and I remember as a as a young fan, every, it seemed that every time Eric Lindros returned to the lineup, the Flyers would suck for about three games because they would, you know, kind of play above their level for a little while. And then he'd come back and be like, oh, the Big E's back. And everyone sort of takes their foot off the gas. You know, this manifested itself a lot during the 2000 uh, Eastern Conference Finals against the Devils. But this was a uh, script we had seen many a times throughout the mid and late 90s with Lindros. So I would worry a little bit about that with Embiid coming back and, you know, him just sort of bumping them out of their groove ever so slightly and the Sixers dropping a game or two. Um, until they sort of, you know, just kind of reassimilated him. He got his, his uh, you know, fully into the rotation. He got his wind back up, all that stuff, you know, making sure he could play with a mask. But, you know, I don't see any concern there. And I think putting him back and, and them getting the rotation right makes them an like, absolute finals, not even contender, but I'd argue favorite in the East as of right now. So just kind of to your point earlier about, you know, does Embiid slow them down? So yeah, he he does. Um, on average, in the month of April, the team's uh, pace 
so the statistic that measures how many possessions they get per 48 minutes, um, they're up nearly three possessions per game since Embiid's gone down. Now, that doesn't really equate to that much, and, and ultimately, like, in a playoff series, it's really not going to change too much. Now, if, if the teams were even, then maybe it, maybe, maybe it, it makes the slightest bit of a difference. Um, but this, this heat matchup is not even. Um, this, this heat matchup is going to really take <clears throat> Sixers shooters to have some of the worst games of their career for them not to advance. Now, I, I do think that at some point, I don't think game two is going to be the one that Miami takes. I think Miami is going to snag one of these at home. I think next game is obviously going to be a lot closer. Um, I'm not so sure that Embiid's coming back this series. The entire time I've thought that he's going to come back for Game 3, I'm not so sure that they're going to feel the need to. I mean, if you're thinking about the long-term ramifications of playing him, and this is a thing that I think Colangelo is going to be maybe even more conservative than he should be, you have to kind of think, is there any value of of bringing him back? I mean, if if they go up in the Series 3-0 or 3-1, maybe the only reason that you play him at that point isn't to go out and, and seal the deal because you need to. You might just bring him back just for the sake of, kind of to your point, reintegrating him into the offense and getting some of the rust off. I mean, the last thing that I want in some way is for him to come back for game one of the Boston series. Or if somehow Milwaukee pulls an upset, which based on that game one performance, there is a chance that Milwaukee ends up getting through. And then it is scary because then you've got Giannis and a bunch of, you know, miss miss parts. Uh, what, what am I looking for? Like misfit toys surrounding him um you know star power in the playoffs is is obviously important you'll see that um you know in any matchup you're watching including like the thunder game last night i mean star stars are what lead you through the postseason and some kind of a bench milwaukee doesn't really have a bench they've got Giannis, and that's it but you know do i want him coming back for game one no like i i guess i guess i want him to come back whenever he's fully healthy I don't want him to be at risk that if he catches a, a knock the wrong way on that mask, that, you know, he ends up going out for longer. I mean, ultimately, you need him ready for the Eastern Conference Finals because this Miami team shouldn't stand in the way. And realistically, if you play Boston, it will probably go six or seven games. And that's not mm. that's it, it would. And that's not being unfair to the Sixers. It's just Boston, even without Kyrie Irving, is a better team than I think a lot of people want to give them credit for. Now, if Milwaukee ends up being the team, that goes six at max. Um, but that, that Boston team is well-coached, which is another thing that I, a lot of people don't put enough into uh, for the postseason, and they really should. And they still have a good group of, of players who have playoff experience and then a good mix of younger players that have been reliable for them all year. Now, if Milwaukee takes Boston to seven games or even to six then I might readjust because there's no reason that Milwaukee should keep it close. Um, it's just when when you break down those two teams, there is there is a massive disparity. I don't know if I would say that the talent disparity is as much as this Philly-Miami series, but it's got to be pretty close. So barring Boston getting taken to seven games, I'm still going to think that they're going to be able to pull two away from the Sixers team in, See, in, I... in the next round. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, look, it, but... That's I, me trying I... to be realistic and not be a homer about it. Yeah, I be, and that's what I, I guess that's what I'm trying to get across. I think, and I, and I wrote about this on Friday, and this is probably a good time to talk about it. Accu Accu score, which simulates um, a thousand, you know, a thousand games or whatever. 
thousands of games to come up with probabilities um, throughout the playoffs. It's not exactly a betting tool, but it uses a lot of uh, metrics. You know, there's a lot of overlap there, but it's not necessarily the odds. The Sixers have the fifth best odds, according to Vegas, of winning it all. According to AccuScore, they have the third best odds at 11%. The Warriors are something like 33. Uh, the Rockets, I think, are somewhere in the high 20s. And then the Sixers are third, uh, way down there at 11%, just ahead of the Cavs at 10%. Um, you know, and I think we, when I saw that, I kind of, you know, my head kind of shot back, considering they're above the Cavs and that they're above the Raptors, certainly above the Celtics. Um, but, you know, you mentioned, like, we don't want to be homers and stuff. And I think this is something we need to let go of uh, as, a, as a fan base. Um, you know, we have a history of losing in this city and always, always being the underdogs. I thought about this the other day. Go back to the, let's start with the 1993 World Series, right? The Phillies were, um, you know, they were underdogs that entire season. But they were slight underdogs to both the Braves and the Blue Jays. And, you know, their luck had to run out at some point, and it did. The 97 Flyers, big underdogs to the Red Wings and got swept. The 01 Sixers, underdogs to the Lakers. Uh, the 2004 uh, five Eagles, underdogs to the Patriots. The 2010 uh, Flyers. Right. The only team, that, well, the 2008 Phillies were really the only team that were favorites heading into the finals and low into the World Series, and lo and behold, they won. Then you got the 2010 Flyers, underdogs. And, um, you know, the Eagles technically were underdogs throughout the playoffs, and I think, you know, rightfully so against the Patriots. The line was low enough to indicate that they had a real shot, which obviously they did. Um, you know, but I think they were fairly underdogs without Carson Wentz. But, you know, we... Historically, even our best teams, the teams we remember most fondly, 93 Phils, 97 Flyers, 01 Sixers, all these teams, once they got to the finals or, you know, even somewhere along their way, were not necessarily favorites. I guess the Flyers were in the East. But, you know, my point is we just don't have a framework for having a team that is so unique and potentially better than everyone, at least everyone in their conference. And I think with the Eagles winning the Super Bowl, and I think seeing a, you know, I know not everybody here likes Villanova, but seeing a team that was the favorite all the way through and lived up to expectations and then some, like, I feel like fortunes are turning around here. And when you see 11% for the Sixers, it's easy to say, well, you know, the 89%, that's hard to go against. Yeah, sure it is. That that 11% was exactly the Eagles uh, betting percentage in terms of odds heading into the playoffs. So it's not obviously not an insignificant number, but I think we have to start looking at these things and say, you know what, they are probably the best team in the East. And it's easy for us to, I think our history of being a fan and saying, well, I think the Celtics are pretty good. They scare me. It could go seven. I mean, yeah, anything can happen. But I truly, I would not be surprised if if they're sitting in the finals and they've lost a total of four games in the East to get there. You know, won this series, you know, one to the Celtics and one to the Cavs, or two to the Cavs. I honestly wouldn't be surprised if, they, if that if was the case. If the Cavs case. make it. If, the Cavs if, make if they it. make it, yeah, absolutely. You know, we're the Raptors. That's, and, and that's like, the other thing, too. It's hard for us to say that. You're like, oh, God, I'm being a homer. There's no way they're going to cry. No, that does, that does happen, and they are good enough to do that. The question is, you know, can they sustain this? Um, you know, do does the fact that they're – Core is very young, uh, you know, kind of just hit a wall at some point, maybe. Um, you know, do they lose 
they're going to be in some close games here. Do they lose those uh, to a, a more you know veteran presence? Yeah, maybe. But like I, I, I think they're better than we want to admit. And I know you kind of laughed at me saying finals, but I, I, I don't think I think the outside is looking at them as favorites in the East, which is also a weird spot to be in, and a spot we definitely did not expect us uh, ourselves to be in this year. And well, we I got mean, an injury break in Kyrie, and you know, so be it. Yeah, I mean, look, I. I watch a lot of games. I watch a lot of NBA games. And I don't think it's being unreasonable to think that another team is going to be able to win a couple games from the Sixers team. And maybe, like, I I guess let's kind of take a a few, like a a larger scale look here. If Embiid comes back for game one, say they make it through this Miami series in four or five games and they don't need to bring him back, that, that first game with Embiid could be the one that they lose. Just because to your your thought of the Lindra, the Lindros effect, the reintegration effect, there's going to be a game where Embiid is probably going to disrupt the the flow at least a little bit. Mm-hmm. They're going to have to get used to playing with him again. It's not like it's not as if he hasn't played for thirty games here at the end of the season. It's not We're, like when right. Rudy Gobert went out and and um, Utah had to readjust their entire game flow. Um, it's going to be a simpler transition, but. You know, at some point in the season, it was, I think it was one of Embiid's like last seven or eight games. What game did he get hurt in? It was the Knicks game. Okay. So this winning streak started long before he went out, by the way. Yeah, it did. They won, I think, nine or 10 games. I think they're up to nine nine wins without him. Yeah, it's basically split split in the middle at this point. Yeah. Um, The the thing that I I think, uh, now I, now I, I lost my train of thought. Where was I going? Uh, oh, Embiid. Okay, so Embiid getting reintegrated. The I think it was probably his like seventh game before he got hurt. Seven games before he got hurt. I said on Twitter that I was a little bit miffed by the fact that he's still, you know, setting up at the top of the arc and doing the pump fake for three. This is like the one thing that I think people might not understand or people are going to, you know, think I'm an idiot for. But when he comes back, I'm abandoning the Joel Embiid three. I'm I'm at most wanting to see two shots per game from from behind the arc, because if nothing else, what this stretch without him has proven is that you have other big men who are much more talented from deep, are much more reliable shooters from deep, and ultimately Embiid is such a beast in the low post that it's not even like the threat of him making two or or like two and a half out of every ten three point attempts is going to, you know, make that that center bite on the pump fake. You don't need to get him set up at the top of the arc. He's capable of dominating against each and every big man that's left in the Eastern Conference, uh, whether that's going to be, you know, a matchup against Hassan Whiteside, who's mostly trash at this point, if it's Al Horford, who shouldn't have been an all-star. And then, I mean, like, who who's he really lining up against on the Cavs? Tristan Thompson? Like, that's not, that's not a scenario that I'm really worried about. So when he gets back... I think they need to, you know, continue to surround him with shooters, and I don't think he should be setting up, you know, where he's kind of accustomed to, of that kind of lazy top of the arc, pump fake, jab step, try to get around the guy acting like he's James Harden. I love Embiid. If he were hitting for a a higher three point percentage, I'd be fine. I just don't need to see it in this run. And I think yeah, Ilyasova I, Ilyasova clearly shoots better from deep, and so does Dario. Um, yeah, but I, got- let's not. I wouldn't get totally. I agree with you to an extent, but I think a 
you know, not maybe not a large part, but a a notable part of Embiid's game is being able to space the floor a little bit. And if you want to continue with this highly up tempo uh, matchup nightmare scenario, being able to move him Embiid out, I agree. He's he's not good when he is settling for those shots. But I do think, and you know, maybe maybe two threes a game is, is reasonable <laughs> from you. But I do think moving him around, getting him outside the paint, getting him cre- continuing to create those difficult matchups, giving the threat of the three. Uh, there's just a lot. I think there's a lot of side effects to him occasionally being able to do that. That expands what you can do as a team. It expands your offense. It opens things up. Like it continues to do that. So yeah, I I agree. I don't need him shooting quite as many threes as he could sometimes fall into that rut. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to take away that element of his game because it's a legitimate element and one that um, you know is it's you know kind of future proof in terms of how how the the future big man is going to look you know he's that guy I think he's probably a better three-point shooter than uh you know his 30 percent rate, uh, rate would indicate this year uh you know it seemed like he, he certainly struggled early um you know I don't know so that would be my only thought there um and, but again I, I actually uh, agree with you not bringing him back for a game one I think you're right and I'm I'm a hundred percent okay if you don't bring him back until they at least lose a game and you know, if nothing else, not so much, you know, yes, partly to just, hey, if they're winning, they're winning. Like, let's just let this play itself out. Um, but, yeah, the, the, I think the rest thing is also huge. You know, we talked about this when he went down. In a way, this could be a weird blessing in disguise or in mask, if you will. Um, okay. Thank you. Thanks. Um, him sitting down for three weeks, three or four weeks, at the end of a long season, uh, without any sort of physical um, osteo, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? You get it. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, a, a bodily uh, limbs, any injury to his limbs. Um, I think that could turn out to be a good thing because if they are destined to play for the next two months, I think this this break will serve him very well, even if it causes him a, a little bit of regression, you know, in the short term when he returns for a few games. Um, so if you can get through an entire series without him, I say go for it. But then it does open up your do you bring him back for game one and, and potentially risk, uh, you know, missing a step and, and giving a team spotting a team a series lead. That would be my only concern with the game one, like you said. But well, I mean, it is, I think this it is turns out to be that- a pretty good thing for him. It's humorous that so many people, you know, even Sports Talk Radio, if you listen, um, people are saying, well, why don't you just bring him beat off the bench for the rest of the playoffs? <laughs> I'm like, why are people so dumb? Maybe this is the 75% that haven't. He's not Markel Fultz. Like, this isn't a guy who has struggled to exist, and now you're adding him late. Like, you know, yeah. I think that's what the average fan might be thinking. Like, oh, well, look, they're so good without him. Like, no, he's, he's so really good. Really, really quick to kind of seal off that the debate about Embiid's three-point shooting percentages. In the month of January, he shot 31% from deep. In February, he got it up to 35%. And then um, in March, he shot 28%. And so, like, I get get what you're saying, and I get what people who are probably going to assault me on Twitter are going to say. My only comeback to that is, if you think about last year when he was shooting a higher percentage from three, so much of the floor spacing that he provided you with was also 
essential because you didn't have guys like Redick and Bellinelli who could shoot. You didn't have a confident Dario that could, you know, knock down threes at what is he going on? Like a 48% clip since, um, I think it was since mid February. Um, when you look at, at, at those kind of shooters that they can surround him with, it, it's really unprecedented in, in, in his career. He's just not used to having that many guys who can space the floor. So where last year, so much of it was contingent on him being potentially their best shooter. Do you remember how Brett Brown would, would say last year that Embiid in practice was probably their most fluid shooter, had the best form, like all that kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. He's not anymore. And so, you know, that element of his game, while it's still important, um, you know, you could get better shots at this point in, in in this playoff run uh, from other guys. And he doesn't need to be that That's floor fair. spacer like he used to be. Because, you know, regardless, whoever they're going to play off him, if it's Dario, Dario's hitting close to 48% since mid-February, right? So there's your floor spacing. He's also going to be out there with Bellinelli and Redick or some combination of that. There's two more. The only guy who doesn't space the floor for you is Ben. And so, like, he, he doesn't need to be that three-point shooter. He doesn't even really need to have the threat of a three. Now, if if it, if it he gets it in the flow of the offense, it's fine. I just don't want to see him in iso ball like he's James Harden. It's, it's unnecessary at this point. Now, next year, depending on how things work out, depending on who they acquire in free agency, depending on if they bring back Ilyasova, Bellinelli, Redick, and crew, like, maybe that, that element of his game needs to return next year, and I get what you're saying about the evolution of the big man, like, that's not lost on me. Like, Carl Anthony Towns has added a three-point shot to his game, sort of, and that's massive for um, for Minnesota, because they don't really have that many shooters. They have Jimmy Butler coming back, and they've got Andrew Wiggins, who's just, I don't, I don't even know what, know what Andrew Wiggins is. MB doesn't need to be a three-point shooter. And if he if he is able to knock them down at like let's say a thirty eight percent clip in this postseason run, well then it's just gravy. But like thankfully, because of acquisitions that have been made by this front office, they just don't need him to be that shooter, and it's okay. So I'm I'm looking forward to the game tonight. I think it's I think they should win. I would say by a, by a pretty considerable margin. I'm, so I'm thinking this is anywhere between. Let's say with three minutes left, the game's probably going to be like anywhere between six and eight points, and then you get into the fouling game. It could end up being like a 12-point spread by the end, but that wouldn't be indicative of the of the game. So they still opened this a seven-point favorite. Uh, the news of Embiid not playing looks like it took it down to six, six and a half, uh, depending on where you're looking. Uh, this is interesting, though. 83% of the bets are on the Sixers at minus, call it minus six and a half. Uh, according to the Action Network. And 87% of the money is on the Sixers at minus 6.5, which are just extreme, extreme skews. Now, there's two ways to look at this. One is, holy shit, the public loves the Sixers at 6.5 and and isn't giving the heat their due because the line uh, has not only moved, is moved away from, uh, I'm sorry, has moved away from the Sixers. So despite all this money being on their side of the coin, the line has actually come down from seven to six and a half. Um, so one way to look at it is, hey, the public really loves the Sixers. The other way is like, well, no, Vegas is probably counting on some late, heavy, big money coming in on the heat at minus six and a half, and the line has moved in their direction. So um, this is one of those odd lines where it's like there's a big skew in terms of who the public is betting on, and yet Vegas is not only holding steady, they've actually shifted a little bit in the heat uh, in the heat's direction after uh, after the Embiid news dropped uh, right around midday yesterday. So uh, interesting, 
interesting line action here. Um, not, I, I don't know. To me, that's actually not the most favorable Sixers line. The fact that it hasn't moved despite that percentage of bets being uh, being in their favor. Yep. Um, um, so, what if they play the Warriors in the final? Like, what do you think? What do you think the highest over under we can get to? I swear to God, like a Sixers Warriors final, we'd be looking Sixers, at like two hundred fifty points a game. Does Does Steph Curry play? Yes. I, I, in theory, those those games could end up being anywhere in what a, a final line of like one twenty five to to like one twenty. What I think it'd be closer. Like it, I, I don't know. So what what does that end up being? Two forty. Two yes. As the over two forties. Yeah, I think it would probably be. Sixers game is highest on the slate tonight, uh, or highest on the slate over the next few days uh, of publicly available lines at two fifteen. Uh, the Wizards Raptors also at two fifteen for tomorrow. Let me ask you this: So, do you think Embiid winds up calling his shot in that Instagram post? Heat, Celtics, Cavs, Warriors. I mean, that's the most likely scenario. That's what conventional wisdom tells you. It will be like the only thing that I think could go sideways there. Oladipo is playing, or Oladipo is playing out of his mind. And ESPN did an article on it this morning that. Um, you know, the, the trade that fell through between Cleveland, uh, it was a three-team deal with Cleveland, Denver, and Indiana. It was supposed to be like a Kevin Love for um, uh, Paul George swap that fell through at the last minute because Indiana took the Oklahoma City deal. Um, Dan Gilbert had come out and said that he thought that they could have done better in, in that valuation on that deal. Oladipo's playing like a guy who's been scorned by a lover, and so... Uh, I don't know. It it is going to be interesting to see if Indiana is able to pull an upset. I know that it it's going to be trendy to say because they won Game One in Cleveland, but if they steal Game Two, um, you know all the jokes that have been going around Twitter right now about LeBron James can't wait to play for Philly, so he's trying to get out of the playoffs faster. Uh, that that noise is going to start to get louder. Can he uh, get here in May? This we could yeah, use right? him then. Wouldn't that be swell? Uh, anyway, we've got to got to wrap it up. But uh, you know, big thank you, of course, to our sponsor. I do, and I will. Uh, there's going to be a post on the site today um, detailing if you or somebody you know are looking for flowers for a wedding. If you're getting close to that moment and you're looking to save money on flowers, they've got a partnership with a company called Enjoy Flowers. And by entering the promo code, uh, a promo code that you'll see on the website later today, uh, you can save 25% off your wedding flowers on orders of $800 or more. And typically, wedding flowers cost anywhere between one and $2,000. And that's not even including the flowers for a reception. So make sure you go check out that post on the site today. Um, a big thank you to I do and I will. The Flyers won a game over the weekend. They lost a game last night in debilitating, crippling fashion. We will be recapping that on Snow the Goalie later this week. Anthony was on CBS 3 Sports Zone last night. I have it on my DVR. I have to go watch it. And the Phillies are on a six-game win streak. They'll be detailing that tomorrow on Crossed Up. So make sure you go check out that podcast. Leave five-star reviews for Crossing Broadcast for Crossed Up and for Snow the Goalie, and for all the other shows on the Crossing Broad Podcast Network. We will uh, we'll be back Wednesday. Kyle, score prediction tonight. Uh, 112-98 to 98 Sixers. Wow. Okay. I'm going to go 108-97 um, mm, 108-96. 108-96, okay. Just, uh, by the way, the CBS uh, Philly Morning Show are all wearing Phantom of the Opera masks uh, right now on a tweet that went out. So the city, we've embraced, uh, if this becomes a mask town for every playoff run, I'm, I think, weirdly okay with that. I'm all in. I'm all in on the mask. Here's to the fan of the process.
I do think. Uh, by the way, uh, we got to go. We, we, okay, one thing. They're wearing this on the VIP morning show. Uh, if Embiid returns, uh, uh, you know what? I'll save it for another show. I have a cool okay. idea. All right. All right. Cool idea. There's a cliffhanger. Come back for Wednesday and find out what cool idea Kyle had. <laughs>